0: Welcome to this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. I am Stuart Blythe, a member of the Faculty at ADC and the Dean of Chapel. Here, you'll get a chance to hear perceptive and powerful sermons, which were delivered by staff, faculty, students, alumni and guests as part of our weekly Wednesday Chapel services. Thank you, Lise, for your reading. Thank you, Tosin, for your prayer. Uh, My name is uh, Reverend John Campbell. Uh, For those of you who I have not met yet, uh, I serve both as the Director of Advancement and the Director of Technology uh, here at the college. And I'm not sure which one you should be more nervous about as I come into the pulpit. Um, The sermon today is titled, What Would Jesus Do for a Klondike Bar? Um, I have gotten feedback of people interested in this, and I hope the sermon lives up to the title. It is the danger of having a a provocative title, I suppose. But if you were a kid and growing up in the 80s or 90s, probably here in North America, you would be familiar with the question, what would you do for a Klondike bar? It was a series of ads that featured people doing silly things for a very plain, simple, mass-produced ice cream sandwich. Some of them would show a businessman clucking like a chicken in his corporate office. Some would show bodybuilders singing, I'm a little teapot in the gym, or even horror behind horror, a husband doing the dishes at home. How quaint. Surprisingly to me, as I looked into this, um, the marketing campaign is still going. I would say going strong, that may be a bit of an overstatement, but it is still going, but the ads are not as cute and innocent as they once were. Uh, I shared one to my Facebook feed this week of two young adults sitting on a swing, bloodied and bandaged eating at a, a Klondike bar. One turns to the other and says, what did you do for your Klondike bar? And then there's a series of flashbacks showing an escalating series of events this young man had just been through, culminating with him hacking his way through a zombie apocalypse. It cuts back to him on the swing, looking a little shell-shocked. And before he takes a bite, he says, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Klondike's have gone a little dark. (laughs) The passage that we see here today, however, is asking us a, a similar question. What would we do? What would we do? Not for something as trivial as a Klondike bar, but for something else. But for what? It's actually the second question of this passage that I want to look at. What do you really want, and what are you willing to do to get it? A little while ago in my work as Director of Advancement, which primarily focuses on uh, fundraising and partnerships to support the college and you as students in your studies, I decided to make a list of passages in Scripture that deal with money and to focus my preaching on them. I did it because Honestly, Jesus talks a lot about money, so I just think it deserves a little bit of airtime. time. Uh, secondly, I don't think we talk about money in relation to our faith very often. And sometimes when it is done, I'm not a super big fan of how it's done. And thirdly, I deal a lot with money in what I do. The passage that we're looking at today uh, is on that list. And I have to be honest, And standing you in front of you before you today, I kind of wish that it wasn't. Um, This passage is honestly a difficult passage. The more that I looked into it, the more I realized how still debated it is among biblical scholars. There are widely different interpretations, all of which I think have some levels of merit. And as we go through it, you're going to hear me say in this sermon multiple times, some scholars believe, or some will say, and I'm going to share with you a few of those interpretations because I think they could and should, and I think there's room for us to do that. Now I said to my wife, Sarah, as I was preparing, the good thing about this is that no matter where I land, even if I get the interpretation wrong, I'm probably gonna be in good company. She said that's a very low bar and to try harder. (laughs) The reason this passage is debated is because there's some rather peculiar and surprising things in the passage that we have to hear and wrestle with. The the beginning of the parable, we meet two men. We have a, a master and a manager. And when I encounter people in Jesus' parables, the first thing that my brain goes to is try to start figuring out the puzzle. Who represents who? And we do that here quickly, probably to our own peril. And I start thinking, I say, well, maybe the master is God and, and the manager, Jesus. Maybe that's what it is. Oh, oh, well, no, maybe, maybe I'm supposed to be the manager. And, and, and Jesus is the master. This is his kingdom, his estate, and I'm working in it. That, that sounds right. I think I've heard that somewhere before. Well, we get to the passage and the master calls the manager in and, and fires him for squandering his property. This is not beginning well. The manager does not dispute this. It seemed to be accepted as fact. And then the manager, realizing that he's losing his job, but more than that, he's going to be kicked out of this household, kicked out of this kingdom, kicked out of this estate, realized that he's soon going to be alone and broke, and he's going to need a new master. He's going to need someplace to land. And then the manager then starts calling up people who owe the master money, and starts forgiving them portions of their debts, 20%, 50%. And we're told it's, it's a way for him to start currying favor with these people. Maybe one of these people will be feel well towards him because of the generosity he, as the manager, did, and that he'll have a place to go after. But this is the problem. So if I'm supposed to be the manager in the parable What am I doing forgiving debts? Isn't debts usually code in Jesus' parables for forgiving sins? And the manager is doing it to save his own neck because he's getting kicked out of the kingdom and needs to find a new master. This is going to some weird theological places. I'm not sure we're on the right track. Okay, so, so maybe Jesus is the manager. Maybe that makes the most sense. But then why does he only forgive a part of the debt? Why not all? We would expect in another parable to see the full debts being repaid, full forgiveness of sin as we enter into the kingdom. And this is the master's money. It's not even the manager's. Is he even allowed to do this? It seems pretty sketchy all around. Now, some biblical scholars (laughs) would say that the manager is actually being altruistic, that maybe the part of the debt that he's forgiving is actually his fair cut for managing that account. And so he's removing that debt to make people feel good about the master and that people aren't being overburdened, perhaps. Others would say that uh, this was actually a practice that happened in the first century of debt forgiveness. It was a way of um, not only encouraging delinquent accounts to pay for more, but it ensure those people owed money wouldn't default on the loan. That they would still be able to pay and not go hungry themselves. It's possible there are extra extra biblical accounts of this kind of uh, thing happening in the Greco-Roman world around this time, but all of that doesn't seem to jive for me because we're told quite clearly the reason the manager is doing it is for his own self-interest. He is not. He does not care about the master or his estate or goodwill towards him. He is very focused on where am I going. And we see him, he's doing this quickly and quietly, going to people, oh, what does your account say? Okay, take quick, sit down right now, change the record, uh, 50% off. You, sit down right now, do it. Maybe that explains why it's only a partial forgiveness of debts and not full, because the master probably knows who owes him, but may not know how much. We don't even get the sense that the manager knows how much people actually owe, because he's asking them for their records and accounts. Nonetheless, in the end, the master hears what is happening and confronts the manager. And then another surprise. He is commended, not condemned. Okay, is Jesus telling us to be dishonest? This doesn't seem to track with what we know about the kingdom or how Christ calls us to live. And these are just some of the big questions that are raised in the passage. And maybe now you see why I am a little bit Uh, regretful about choosing this passage for you today. But in order for us to understand what Jesus is trying to say during the parable, it really comes down to verse 8, really this 8b, the second part of verse 8, and verse 9. We need to understand that at this point, Jesus moves from telling the narrative, telling the story, to speaking to those who are listening and maybe, although this is even argued, uh, trying to apply the teaching. Some would argue these verses don't even belong here, that they were added on later and that they were just hacked together by Luke. Nonetheless, they're here now. We're introduced in verse 8b to two other groups, which honestly doesn't help. One is The children of this age and the other are children of the light. Again, there is a disagreement among biblical scholars as to who this represents. Some would say that the children of light are actually the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They point to things like uh, references in the Qumran scrolls within the Essene community, where they sometimes refer to themselves as children of light. And if this is true, then the children of this age may represent those who are out there who are trying to actually come to Jesus who, like the manager, are willing to do anything and everything to enter into this new kingdom. It's a condemnation or a rebuke against the religious leaders. Possibly. Feels like a bit of a stretch, maybe. But others would say that children of the age simply represent unbelievers in the time, and that the children of the light are the disciples, those inheriting the kingdom. And so this could be a call to us as disciples to act more shrewdly, like the children of the age. This is the more traditional interpretation, and I think it rings true. And as we move into verse 9, Jesus says, he tells you to make friends by means of dishonest wealth, so that when the wealth is gone, that you may be welcomed into eternal homes. Here we get to the pivot, the fulcrum of this passage. Jesus is telling us straight that we should be make friends by our means of dishonest wealth so that when that wealth is gone, we may be welcomed into eternal homes. That really doesn't clarify things. To understand this, we need to back up for a second. We need to remember that this is in sitting in Luke in a passage and a larger discourse that Luke is having talking about money and the kingdom. We see things like the cost of discipleship, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, which happens just before this. And then this is followed by the story of the rich man and Lazarus. All of these deal with the kingdom and wealth and value. And ultimately, we need to interpret this in that space to realize that this parable is trying to teach us something about money and wealth and what we value and about the kingdom. Some read this, this statement, especially this verse nine by Jesus, as really ironic, even sarcastic. Some people see it as, sure, Jesus says, go ahead. You go ahead and get friends with all your dishonest money. Let's see them welcome you into eternal homes. And while I think this is actually kind of in line with Jesus's message, I don't think it's actually how it's meant to be read. Not as sarcastic as that. There's no literary indication of that. And honestly, it just reads more sarcastic in modern English to us than it does in Greek. So that's what a lot of people think. What do I think? I believe that Jesus is talking to people with wealth, people like the manager in the story, the children of this age, and telling them, telling us, that we should use the wealth and the resources that we have at our disposals not to make friends with other wealthy individuals, not to use the wealth we've been entrusted with to look after our own needs. Jesus does commend through the story the acting of the manager who was shrewd. And we need to draw a fine line because it was his shrewdness, not his actions, that Jesus holds up. What he did seems to be dishonest, and also short-sighted. We, he, should be making friends with those who can welcome us into our eternal homes, into the kingdom of God. But who can welcome us into the eternal kingdom? The answer is found earlier in Luke, I believe, when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The poor, the poor in spirit are the children of light. That's who we should be concerned about. That who is going to be welcoming the rest of us into the kingdom. That is who we need to be concerned about. Not ourselves, not the rich, but others and the poor. Because in the kingdom of God, things get turned upside down. The first will be last the rich will become poor, the outcast will be the insider. You just need to read on a little bit further, which we didn't do today, to read the story of the rich man and Lazarus that comes right after, where Jesus paints this very clearly for us. The traditional understanding, which focuses on being shrewd, is right and true. That is part of what we are supposed to take away from here. And there may be some um, highly esteemed Luke scholars in the room who have written commentaries on this passage that have put forward this idea. And so I will not... I will not disagree with that. However, I think we need to go a little bit further in the understanding and the application of this. You see, the master wanted the manager to act shrewdly. That's what I think was originally missing in the way that he was handling the estate. The manager was asleep at the wheel, he was squandering opportunities. The master is just trying to say to him, Wake up, try new things, just try to make the most. Out of the opportunities in front of you for the sake of the master's kingdom. But the manager was worried about himself and money and a posh life. I can't dig holes. I can't, I can't beg. That was beneath him. He used the money to cozy up to other rich people so he would be taken care of. He wasn't concerned about the master's kingdom. He wasn't concerned, he was concerned about his lifestyle his place in the world. He was worried about the wrong kingdom. Yes, we should act shrewdly, but we need to make sure that our actions are less focused on the here and now and more on the by and by, less on the earthly, more on the eternal, less on ourselves, more on the others. But the manager spent all this good effort on something that didn't matter. He chose a Klondike bar instead of the kingdom, if you will. Now, am I or this passage trying to say that we shouldn't be concerned about the matters of the here and now, that we shouldn't take care of the physical needs of ourselves and others? No, not at all. The Lord has prepared good works in advance for us to do. We know this. He commands us to care for the oppressed, the outcast, the destitute. And if anything, this passage is reinforcing that teaching. But it's doing it by ensuring that our response to those needs is comes from an outpouring from our focus on the eternal and is not just an ends unto itself. This is biblical justice. Jesus is telling us that the managers that have used his efforts to make friends with the children of the light, the poor, the disciples, that they could have welcomed in to eternity. But he's got his eyes down on the road and not lifted to the cross. So now, what about us? What about you? This passage leaves us asking two questions that I think that we need to ask ourselves, which I will not answer for you today, but rather reinforce and pose to you, to take away, to allow the Spirit to ask them of you. What are you willing to do? And what do you want? What are you willing to do? We're told to act shrewdly. And to be clear, shrewd does not mean to be dishonest. It means to be wise. It means to be creative, hardworking, outside the box thinkers, ingenious, far-sighted, keen. Thank you, Thesaurus. <laughs> but why don't we act this way? I think if I would ask you, would you do you want to act this way? We would probably all say yes. I think there's a few reasons. One, I just had the opportunity to listen to Reverend Grace Skier talk about Dr. Perline Oliver. Dr. Oliver, she was a giant of a woman in our Atlantic Baptist family, a pillar in the African Nova Scotian community, and one of our greatest social activists and freedom fighters in Canada. And and Grace shared about growing up and the influence Perlene had on them and shared how young girls would say to Miss Perlene, share their dreams of what they would like to do with their lives, what they wanted to accomplish, but also shared their doubts that they just couldn't do that. And Grace said, all it took was Miss Perlene to look them in the eyes and to point that finger and says, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Sometimes we feel like we just need somebody's permission to do something different, to make changes, to follow a dream. There's something inside of us that holds us back that if somebody would just look into our lives and say, yes, you can, then maybe we could be more shrewd. My friends, if that is what is holding you back, this parable of what Jesus is saying to you, not only yes, you can, but yes, you should. If you ever feel like you need that nod, the go-ahead, the put me in coach, I'm ready to play, let this piece of scripture be the answer to you and that voice to you today. Sometimes we don't act truly because we are comfortable. Like the manager, we slowly slip into an easy life and start squandering opportunities that we have, not desperately seeking to maximize the opportunities for kingdom impact. Jesus points to the manager as an example of what people are willing to do for something eternally insignificant. Their Klondike bar, what are you willing to do for something that is more significant? What would you be willing to do for something of eternal consequence? What would you be willing to do for the kingdom? What would you give up? Sacrifice, go without, endure in responding to God's call. What are you afraid of letting go of? What can't you imagine the Lord would ask of you to leave behind for him? These are the questions to be asked and re-asked of ourselves to let the Spirit speak in our lives. And finally, the second part of this question is what do you want? We need to make sure in our lives, time and time again, that we are serving God in his kingdom and not earthly treasures. This whole parable is a wake up call for us to re examine our lives again and again to see what we are actually working towards. The manager's lament of not wanting to dig holes or beg shows how he is no longer poor in spirit. He would not humble himself, he would not degrade himself. To be lower himself to that. And this is the insidious thing about money is that it tends to creep in slowly over time. I know some of you are saying, Lord, let it be so. (laughs) But a car has a way of becoming a desire for a better car. And a house becomes a desire for a better house. And simple hobbies become expensive hobbies. And while none of these are bad things, We can get to a point in our lives where the line that we drew in the sand to say, this is enough, is behind us and not ahead, and we don't remember stepping over it. Where is that line for you? Sometimes in our churches and ministries, the money can be more important than the mission, and it never starts that way. I don't know of any church that started that way. The mission matters, the mission drives, but then the money to support the mission becomes a point of stress. There isn't as much, it doesn't go as far. Eventually we end up in a place where our priorities have become upside down. I have to confess, I like to read bulletins. When I visit churches on behalf of the college, I like to compare the number of fundraisers to the number of ministries the church offers. It's shallow and insignificant, but it's a guilty pleasure. I'm not sure what the right ratio of fundraisers to ministries should be, but I know more often than not, I come away feeling a little uncomfortable. When it becomes evident through it, and you get the sense, whether it's true or not, but you get the sense that it's more about the baked beans than the Bible studies. That's more about the dollars than the discipleship. It's more about the roof than the refugees and the windows than the widows. When it's more about building bigger and not building the kingdom better. When we are worried more about storing up our treasures here on earth rather than the treasures in heaven, we stop being the church. There is tension in all of this, of course. We can, and the arguments are made, that these things facilitate and enable ministry. And they do. A building opens doors to opportunities and communities. Budgets provide resources and materials, people and streaming equipment and lawn signs. It's all good. It's all true. But when these things take priority, when these things take more of our time, when these things take more of our focus, when that's when we need to be careful. That's when we need to re-examine ourselves, to ask ourselves, what are we serving? Because as Jesus says, we can't serve him and money. There is only one seat and one throne. So as we wrap up, I hope that this passage is a call for us to do a double check, to take stock, to remind and question ourselves, to provide the space for the spirit, to examine ourselves, to wrestle with these two questions, to be watchful, be mindful, to be shrewd and to stop and ask us as Jesus poses these questions, what are we willing to do? And are we doing it for the kingdom or a Klondike Bar? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your teaching that we find in scriptures today. And Lord, I admit that there are many parts of it that we don't understand. We try to understand. We pray, Lord, that through my words today, through the reading of your scripture, that your spirit, Lord, will ask us these questions. These are questions, Lord, that I believe that we need to ask ourselves time and time again. Lord, help us to be good stewards. Help us to be good managers. Help us to act shrewdly, wisely for your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that all of us keep our eyes to keep our focus on you and to serve you and not the things of this world. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us in this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. You can follow us on social media. Discover more on our website at acadiadiv.ca or join us for chapel on a Wednesday.